0: That's the hardest thing. There's nothing we can do for them, to offer them. Too unstable to be transported for a, to a center that provides ECMO.
1: The biggest problem with ARDS is that unlike many of the other elements that we deal with, there is no magic bullet.
0: Treating ARDS a lot of times just takes time and there's not really any specific thing that you can do. It's kind of frustrating
1: not being able to see a quick turnaround.
0: a ton of ARDS cases in our hospital system this year.
1: Over the last few months, we've had to pull out nearly every advanced ARDS therapy in our arsenal.
0: Sounds like a good time to make an arts Core Content episode, if you ask me. I think we've got enough material to split into two parts. So in this first episode, we're going to focus on identification and early management with ArtsNet. And then we're going to do a follow-up episode with more advanced arts therapies. Let's start with the case. And y'all remember this one because we're going to reference it all episode.
1: So we've got a 53-year-old male. He's in the ICU on the vent after extensive abdominal surgery. He had a perforated viscous with peritonitis, septic shock, which, as you would expect, required surgical intervention. Prior to going to the OR, he was in three-pressor shock and returned from the OR still in shock. Over the next few days after surgery, he gradually was weaned off pressors but was unable to wean from the vent. As you come in in the morning, you hear that he's now on 80% FIO2 and the RT is now going up on the PEEP to 10, previously from 5. Before that, he's been on low oxygen settings for the last several days.
0: Just as an aside, this is a fictional case and any resemblance of a real patient is purely unintentional. So, back to the case. Sounds like we have some hypoxemia on the vent after major belly surgery. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that they have ARDS,
1: since we're doing an ARDS episode. Ever the genius, Jer. Ever the genius. We will definitely come back to that case again soon. ARDS was first written about as far back as 1821 and was described as idiopathic pulmonary edema, but it really burst onto the scene during World War I and II when it was seen in trauma patients and was called Shock Lung. Shock Lung. That's a way cooler name than ARDS. I know. But unfortunately, in 1967, a case series was published that first used the word ARDS and the name stuck. It was used to describe refractory hypoxemia, tachypnea, and diffuse opacities after trauma or infection. I'm going to stick with Shock Lung.
0: Back to our patient, who uh, we'll name Phil for the duration of the episode, who had worsened oxygenation after a few days on the vent after belly surgery. Does Phil have
1: ARDS? And what are we going to do to find out? ARDS has traditionally been a simple three-part diagnosis. This was developed in 1994 and is called the AECC, that's American European Consensus Conference, definition. It's just PF ratio less than 200, bilateral infiltrates, and a occlusion pressure or wedge pressure less than 18. Most of our patients don't have swans in, though, so... True, true. So really what we take that to mean nowadays is that it's not thought to be cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So you could look at a patient's history, echo, assess their
0: volume status yourself, and the billion ways you can do it in the ICU, I mean...
1: So ours is a pretty easy and straightforward diagnosis, right? Yes. Doesn't sound like it should be missed frequently, right? I feel like you're leading me somewhere. Just say it. Well, it is missed frequently in hospitals around the country, or at least caught later than it
0: should be. Perhaps that's because it's a secondary diagnosis. You don't come into the ER with ARDS. You come into the ER with pneumonia or sepsis, pancreatitis, and then you develop ARDS later in your hospital stay. In fact, the traditional papers say that it's commonly seen within seven days of a known risk factor. I've definitely come on to shift with a patient on seventy percent FiO two, five of PEEP, and been the first person to think about the patient more globally, and realize that perhaps the patient was developing ARDS. But I've also been the person on shift who, when their oxygenation was worsening, and for some reason just didn't put it all together. Whether it was due to being busy or other patients
1: or some other excuse. sounds like you're describing a scenario similar to Phil. So when you're coming on shift and your patient has worsening oxygenation, what are you looking for specifically?
0: Based on the original definition, I'm pulling up the most recent chest x-ray and ordering a new one since there's been a change in oxygenation. I'm also ordering a blood gas if we don't have one and looking at their PF ratio, PaO2 divided by FiO2. And I'm determining if my patient has any reason for this to be cardiogenic pulmonary edema and not ARDS. Any tricks to combat patients like Phil getting worse subtly and missing an ARDS diagnosis? Anytime you see an FiO2 greater than 50%, you should be thinking about ARDS. If you look for it, you will find it. And keep it in the back of your mind and start looking. You know, unless they just got intubated and haven't had their oxygen weaned yet, we should be thinking about this. So back to the question earlier, is ARDS an easy diagnosis? Well, like most things in medicine, no. The definition supplied earlier
1: is the old definition. Ah, the new Berlin definition, 2012. It's similar to the old definition, but with a few key changes. Number one, ARDS begins within seven days of that initial insult. Number two, bilateral opacities, either by chest X-ray or CT and this is the key here, that are not fully explained by effusions, atelectasis, or nodules and masses.
0: And number three, they define hypoxemia a little bit further into a minimum PEEP of five, and then they break down severity by PF ratio. The term acute lung injury is now out of the definition entirely, with a PF ratio of 200 to 300 being mild ARDS. PF ratio of 100 to 200 is moderate ARDS, and severe is anything less
1: than 100. Back to Phil. When you start investigating him to see if he has ARDS, you notice his chest x-ray does have bilateral opacities, and his PF ratio was 120 this AM. And that's on 80% FiO2 and that new peep of 10.
0: If we look at our Berlin definition, he's within 7 days of a potential insult. That's
1: abdominal catastrophe and subsequent abdominal sepsis. But is there a chance his opacities on chest x-ray could be explained by CHF or other cardiogenic pulmonary edema? In this case, there is. The patient's been in septic shock on multiple
0: pressors for several days before and after surgery. He's presumably had a large amount of IV fluids and further fluid shifts from his surgery. So walk me through how you'd investigate that further. I'd like to pull up his eyes and nose, which in this case indicates that Phil is 10 liters positive since admission. So now I'm really thinking that maybe he's got some iatrogenic volume overload. But then I remember that he doesn't have a Foley anymore, and really hasn't for the majority of his admission since his surgery. Can I trust his eyes and nose? Probably not. Maybe I would ask the nurse,
1: and they agree. His eyes and nose aren't accurate. A classic new problem in the hospital. Eyes and nose just don't seem to carry the weight they used to. I said... They don't seem to carry the weight they used to. No, I, I got it. I was trying to say, we have to use daily weights now. Definitely got it. Still not funny. God, I thought that was funny. So at risk of getting Jeremy all excited, I'm going to ask a question. So what actually is ARDS? We just spent a whole lot of time going over all the definitions. No, I mean, make me understand
0: what is happening in the body that's causing ARDS. Ooh, physiology to the rescue histologically in the lungs you see diffuse alveolar damage good old dad (laughs) so the lungs initial response to injury is called the exudative phase which is basically just immune cell mediated damage directly to the alveoli which results in protein-rich fluid buildup both within the interstitium and the alveoli you get this edema Specifically, non cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Here, from inflammatory cytokines that are released into the alveolar space, you start to recruit macrophages
1: and T cells. I can imagine this just continues to worsen the inflammation.
0: Yeah, and any injury during this phase is worsened by stretch on the alveoli induced from mechanical
1: ventilation. The second phase is known as the proliferative phase and is basically the beginning of the healing process. The edema begins to be reabsorbed if the patient is going to survive. The alveoli regains some of its integrity and function during this phase. And this leads to the last
0: phase of ARDS, or the fibrotic phase, which doesn't occur in all ARDS patients, but as you'd imagine, it's linked with a higher mortality. So, to summarize, ARS has been known as this rapid development of capillary congestion, atelectasis, intraalveolar hemorrhage, alveolar edema, which is later followed
1: after a few days by hyaline membrane formation. So I'm going to take that summary and further summarize it. It's a mix of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema and inflammatory cells set off by an inflammatory cascade reaction, and maybe some blood and atelectasis. Bingo! <laughs> Got any clever coin terms for that mix? Inflammal non-cardio edema hemorrhage? Mm, I think you're making fun of me, but actually
0: that wasn't that half bad. We have to resist the urge to talk about inside jokes, though.
1: That's what got arrested development canceled. There's always money in the banana stand. (laughs) Alright, let's move back on to our patient. Does he have ARDS? Does Phil have ARDS? Ah, it's
0: unclear. Based on that physiology discussion, it's possible that he either has ARDS or pulmonary edema. If he has ARDS, it's non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema based on the inflammatory cascade that we just described. If it's iatrogenic, from all the volume we gave him, it's just traditional pulmonary edema. Correct, but we still aren't any closer to determining if he has ARDS
1: or not. So is ARDS super common? We talk about it a lot in the intensive care unit. It's actually less common than it used to be, and we'll get into why, but I think the reason we intensivists talk so much about it is that it's an interesting disease that we literally are the only group in the hospital that manages so a core part of ARDS is refractory hypoxemia, which seems to always get treated in the ICU, usually with an endotracheal tube. That leads to a good question. Do all patients with ARDS need to be intubated? Relooking at the definitions for this podcast, actually No. It's definitely harder to discern their PF ratio and thus severity of ARDS, but they don't necessarily have to be on the vent. The Berlin definition makes reference to this in their minimum PEEP
0: of 5 section, stating that a tight-fitting mask with non-invasive ventilation, i.e. BiPAP, and maybe to some extent even high-flow nasal cannula with flow rates greater than 45 liters per minute, these would both be acceptable to meet their minimum
1: requirements of that minimum PEEP of 5. I didn't know that piece about the high-flow nasal cannula. We've all taken care of patients that somehow stay on high-flow nasal cannula for days and days and never get intubated. I could have called them ARDS this whole time.
0: Yeah, you could have if their flow rate was greater than 45 liter per minute, but would that have changed your management of the patient? I guess not, really. So
1: back to the incidence of ARDS. What is it? I've seen modern times somewhere between 5 and 10% of ICU patients have ARDS. One paper quoted upwards of 24% of vented patients, with the caveat that it's definitely under-recognized in low-income countries due to less availability of chest X-ray or CT. And as we alluded to earlier, it can be
0: under-recognized in high-income countries as well. It's estimated that mild ARDS can be missed up to 50% of the time, and severe ARDS is close to 24% of the time. And we'll link that study in the show notes. So we're concerned that Phil has ARDS. What do we do next? Well, you put him on net, of course. As far as ICU terms go put them on ARDSnet is right up there with put them on the sepsis bundle as far as most frequently used phrases in the ICU. Let's stop for a second and ask, is ARDS
1: really treatable? Do we have an ARDS drug we can just prescribe? That question's got me all depressed. The old standby, treat the underlying cause and supportive therapy definitely qualify as correct statements in ARDS. I hate supportive care. Don't get all depressed on me just yet. There hasn't been tons of ARDS studies over the years for nothing. We may not have a magical treatment for ARDS, but we do have guidance on how to manage ARDS patients. If you
0: really want to simplify what we're going to talk about moving forward, the name of the game is Prevent Further Lung Injury. Major take-home point of the episode, for sure. In theory, they're saying that they're going to use low tidal volume ventilation and start recruiting with a higher PEEP than the old 5 centimeter of water standby. Particularly the low tidal volume piece
1: is termed a lung protective strategy. So ARDS actually refers to the Clinical Trials Network, who researched and published many impactful papers on ARDS as far back as 2000. Ooh.
0: You know, for the amount of grief that John gives me for being a physiology geek, you're a total clinical trial nerd. He thinks it passes for regular conversation in the ICU to just quote studies to each other.
1: I really try to quote studies in the least pretentious way possible. It just never comes across study right. Studies show. Well, on that note, back to the studies. So the original ARDSnet study is actually called the ARMA trial. Bet you didn't know that. And it came out in
0: 2000. I did know that. The ARMA trial started and kicked off this whole ARDSnet initiative. And now ARDSnet is a regular part of daily ICU practice. The
1: short version of ARDSnet involves low tidal volumes or a long protective strategy coupled with recruitment or corresponding PEEP to FIO2. Basically, as soon as we identify patients with ARDS, we should place them on ARDSnet. Given all we're really doing with ARDSnet is preventing further ventilator-associated injury to the lungs, there's really no reason not to do it. In fact, a lot of intensivists are arguing that all of our patients should probably start at six cc's per kg right out of the gate, regardless of whether they have ARDS or not, just to prevent lung injury. Yeah, the
0: days of just placing them on 500 cc's of tidal volume and walking away should probably be
1: over. Definitely, a habit I wish would go away. If you're dealing with a lot of ARDS patients as a provider or an RT or nurse, it's definitely not a bad idea to carry around a laminated card with the appropriate tidal volume per weight. Throw that in the show notes. Indeed, show notes. But if you reference that card frequently, you will all of a sudden find yourself using less title volume. Yeah, particularly
0: for females and short people. 500 cc is way too much. In fact, I did a Twitter poll asking people not to look at any reference to see if they knew the approximate 60 cc's per kg for a 5'2 female, and a lot fewer people got it right than I would have thought. So back to Phil. Let's put him on ArtsNet. We'll reduce his title volume to 60 cc's per kg if he's not already there. Let's imagine his height is 5'10". That calculates out to be 438 cc's of tidal volume, so we'll likely put them on 425 because our vent does only increments of 25.
1: I know there's more you're going to do to our patient for ARDSNet,
0: but let's stop right there and focus on tidal volume. Remember, the point is to avoid ventilator-induced lung injury, but we haven't explained how
1: patients get ventilator-induced lung injury in the first place. Right. The simple way I explain it to trainees or junior learners for our Australian colleagues is that you and I breathe by negative pressure. This is extremely oversimplified, but our diaphragm pushes down towards our abdomen, generating negative pressure that allows air to flow into the lungs. By intubating someone and putting them on the ventilator, we are introducing positive pressure into the chest, which changes the whole equation around. Very simply, our bodies aren't used to that and can get all sorts of injury related to that. There are so many things I want to add to that. Well, tough, man. This is my episode. Arge is my pet. You're going to have to deal with my simple-minded approach to physiology, at least for this episode. What are the unintended consequences of low tidal volume strategies? Well, the main one is a concept called permissive hypercapnia. Remember the old equation, minute ventilation equals tidal volume times rate? This plays a major role in ventilation and gas exchange. If you
0: need to improve a respiratory acidosis in general, you'd like to increase the minute ventilation
1: or minute volume. Now, in ARDSnet, we are really wanting to keep our tidal volume at 6 cc's per kg. The max you can go up to is 8 cc's per kg. As we'll talk about soon, sometimes even lower is better. Lower than 6 cc's per kg.
0: Correct. If we're unwilling to compromise on increasing that tidal volume, that leaves us with only the rate as our adjustment number to improve minute ventilation and
1: therefore improve our respiratory acidosis or hypercapnia. So a lot of times you'll see ARDS patients on a much higher rate than the average vented patient. You may even need to anticipate a higher rate and just go ahead and start them at that higher rate. But there's only so far that you can go.
0: 35 is often considered the safe max. I mean, uh, can you go higher than that?
1: Sure. You just need to know what you're doing and adjust the ventilator appropriately. It takes a pro and the right patient when you get much higher than a rate of 35. So why does the RT hate it when I suggest going a higher
0: rate? Typically, they're concerned about things like auto-peeping, breath stacking, this concept that short exhalation times will often force the patient to incompletely exhale, and that leaves lung volume and subsequently lung pressure in the chest during the next inhalation. Literally breath stacking. Right. Right. Over time, this volume and pressure in the chest continue to build up more and more, and this leads to higher intrathoracic pressures, worsening barotrauma, and even decreased venous return to the heart, and therefore lower blood pressure, and ultimately cardiac arrest. Sounds like a pretty reasonable concern. I agree. But that doesn't change the fact that we often want higher minute ventilation in ARDS, but are limited by the tidal volume, so we have to adjust the rate. And to counteract this breath stacking phenomenon, we can adjust the inspiratory time to reflect this higher frequency of
1: breaths. So let's bring it back to Phil. We're putting him on ARDSnet. We've reduced his total volume to 425 and are looking at his PEEP and FIO2 next. So we would adjust his PEEP to meet his FIO2 needs. Currently, he's
0: on 80% FIO2. If he remains that high, he'll need quite a lot of PEEP. Even on the low PEEP table, 80% FIO2 equates to 14 of PEEP. But typically when we place someone who wasn't on ARDSnet before on higher PEEP, we find that we're able to come down on the FIO2 as we go up on PEEP. One of the things that I sometimes encounter is we'll have a patient who acutely becomes hypoxemic and maybe we have a suspicion that they're developing ARDS. So let's say they were on 100% of FIO2 and 5 of PEEP when you make the decision to flip them to ARDSnet. Do you just increase them to 20 of PEEP out the gate? Or do you drop their FiO2 and ladder their PEEP up? How do you figure out what their
1: initial settings should be? So based on your question, I'm first going to assume that I truly think this patient has ARDS and not cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Correct. We've done all the things. We have a high
0: suspicion for ARDS at this point.
1: But I'm doing the second thing you described where I'm I'm kind of slowly going up on the PEEP and coming down on the FiO2 simultaneously. I put them on Tana PEEP next, try to get down to 90%. Then maybe 12 or 14 a peep, trying to get down to 80, 70%. And then at some point, you find that happy equilibrium where the patient seems to want to live. Is there a maximum amount of peep that you're comfortable
0: increasing over a period of time? Like, are you comfortable going up by five of peep, 10 of peep?
1: I probably wouldn't go up more than five to 10 in an hour without seeing what happens to the FIO2. Already done. Now Phil is on ArtsNet. What's your next move?
0: Basically, monitoring. I want to make sure that he's tolerating these vent changes. And I'd like an ABG about an hour after we make some of our major changes so that we know that dropping his tidal volume doesn't significantly drop his pH. Depending on his previous ABGs and previous minute ventilation, I may have already increased his rate to compensate for that drop in tidal volume.
1: So you get that ABG at one hour and he's ventilating well. He settled in at 70% FiO2 with a PEEP of 14 and his PF ratio is now 140. What's your next step? This is where Arts gets fun. What to do beyond Artsnet. Ooh,
0: can we call this episode mini series to Artsnet and Beyond? I think we can. Is that a, that's not a conflict of interest with Disney, is it? Done. That's the title. Alright. That's the title of the episode. To Artsnet
1: and Beyond. To artsnet and beyond. Beyond, beyond. Sorry, Disney. <laughs> so stay tuned next episode. We'll dive into advanced arts therapies and focus on the practical aspect on when they should and could be implemented. On the next episode of ArtsNet and Beyond. Dying
0: to know what's going to happen to Phil, but you're just going to have to wait. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.